Buffett Exit Gold and Base Metals are on a rampage. Welcome to Kick Around Table. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hi, Niels. Hello. Happy Friday. Kiko correspondent Paul Harris. Hi, Paul. Hi. Good afternoon. And with us is Ashley Heppenstall, board member of Lundin Mining and chair of Jose Maria Resources. Ashley, welcome to Kiko. Thank you. Good to be here. Lundin Mining is under the storied Lundin family. The miner is a copper, zinc, nickel, and gold producer, which reported half a billion gross profit in 2020. Jose Maria is an exploration company focused on copper gold project in Argentina. Ashley, you picked a good time to be in copper. It certainly is a good time to be in copper, isn't it? Um, and I think that's going to continue for some time, in my opinion. Um, copper producers such as London Mining are in a great place to take advantage of this strength. Um, as you said, London Mining announced its results this morning and they showed very strong cash flow generation. And, and that's going to only increase with um, with prices we've seen at the moment. And also their, uh, their guidance in 2021 shows increased tons which is good news. I think uh, the Chapada acquisition in Brazil is proving to be a good acquisition and resulting in um, uh, it's been a good investment for the company, uh, as, as is the, the investments that the company has made over the last few years into its existing assets like Candelaria. And I think they'll start to bear the fruits from those investments going forward. So they're in a great position. They've got no debt and um, London Mining is very well positioned to take advantage of the strength in copper. As is Jose Maria, it's a very different company, but Jose Maria is um, is a development company. And I think um, in this environment we're in today, we're going to see more of a focus on undeveloped assets of good quality, such as the um, Jose Maria deposit in, um, in Argentina. As well, I mentioned I at the top of the podcast, copper is an all-time high, and we want to, get, uh, we want to understand more about uh, what's happening with the pipeline. But uh, please, Paul, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that the broader Lundin group has got a, a lot of good exposure to the rise in the copper price. Um, you mentioned Jose Maria, but there's the Philo Mining and NGEX as well. So uh, the Lundin group, the Lundin family has got a, a pretty big bet on, on the future of copper. Sorry, go ahead, Ashley. No, no, I was just going to say that um, it's been a long haul with these companies we've been invested in for a long time. And uh, hopefully now in, uh, in this cycle, we can start to take advantage of that. Well, and I wanted to say, like, I mean, gold isn't in a bad place either. I mean, okay, yes, it hasn't had a great week, but, um, you know, above $1,700, you know, trading just below $1,800, um, the gold market is not in a bad place. No, no, I agree. Um, I think gold's in a, in a very good place. And um, I personally think that um, uh, gold is going to do very well over the next uh, two or three, four years, I think, um, uh, again, we're well positioned. Um, I'm also on the board of London Gold, and uh, it's been a very a, a good success story. And um, I think um, I wouldn't be too negative on gold, despite the recent fallback in price. Um, continuing with this, the copper theme, if I may, um, you know, the, the pipeline of projects in the copper space, you know, there's not many in there. And so the London Group having copper projects at development stage or coming into development stage is, is very timely. But um, I, I guess the question is really, you know, uh, copper's hit $4 a pound for the first time since 2013. But uh, so what do you think, Ashley, is, is the incentive price that will start seeing sort of developments being able to go forward? I think we're pretty much there already. Um, I think that um, we need to see, we, we probably had a period of, an extended period where companies have not invested in new supply. 
Um, and um, I think that that's been for a number of reasons. Perhaps companies have not been good at managing those projects. Um, and, and so I think that we're now in a situation where it may take a little while, but I think the companies who do are going to benefit from that. And perhaps boards and managements need to be a little bit more aggressive. Because certainly from a supply demand, we can talk later about supply and demand of copper, but there's going to be a need for more uh, supply. And, um, and, that's, um, and that's going to benefit the companies who are perhaps a little bit more aggressive in terms of taking on new development projects. I mean, do, do you think companies are still under the sort of capital discipline um, sort of uh, train of thought mindset, given that, you know, the average uh, copper development project, you're looking at easily at least a couple of billion dollars. Um, so is there still a capital, capital discipline mindset, which is perhaps why projects aren't being launched? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. You'd have to go in the, in, the, in the closed doors of some of these large companies. But I think they, in my opinion, um, they've perhaps been a little bit too conservative. And um, maybe they've been paid in the markets for being disciplined and they don't want to make the mistakes that they made before by paying too much money for, for undeveloped assets and, um, and investing in projects where they don't deliver. Um, uh, so there's a number of, of, of issues, issues at, at play here. Um, but I think what you are going to see is you are going to see more activity, particularly if, 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 the, if the current, my view that prices are going to stay strong and we're in a, in a new cycle, if people start to believe that, then of course, people will start to make investment decisions. Uh, I suppose the conservative attitude isn't helped by the fact that, for example, this week, Tech Resources reported that it's uh, QB2 expansion, that the cost overrun of that is going to be even more. It's going to be 450 to $500 million on a, on a $5.2 billion project already. So uh, I, I guess people are perhaps going to wait to see until things normalize from the COVID-19 situation to not have those, to run those particular risks. Yeah, that's probably right. I think that um, the impact of COVID can't be underestimated. It's, it's obviously having an impact upon, upon existing supply with with some project with, with existing um, existing um, operations challenge, and I think that um, also where there's capital investment programs, a number of companies have had to prioritize existing production over those capital investment programs, and um, and that's not going to change um, um, certainly in my view this year. So um, so it's not an easy time. I think the other thing worth mentioning also is is people like um, a lot of the people who built these big projects have. Um, are getting older uh, and there's not a lot of people in the world who can build these big projects so we should also focus upon availability of good quality um, staff to um, and, and managers to be able to build these projects and they're going to be in high demand in my opinion. Um, I just wanted to ask really quickly you know like just not to get too much into the weeds here but um, you know we've seen the rally in copper prices um, and I'm just sort of wondering, I mean, and I know that there's fundamental reasons behind this. The, the supply and demand imbalance is, is massive. But is yeah. there some concern that the market is a little bit too frothy when, when we see, you know, sort of these multi-year highs and, you know, mm. around $4? Yeah, I personally don't think so. Um, I think you, you um, we've talked about the underinvestment in new supply and we've talked about COVID challenges. But then you look at the demand side. Like the impact of government stimulus around the world um, and, and, and a lot of investment in infrastructure has got to be positive for future demand for, for likes of copper, for, for all metals. 
And then I think that the other issue is the energy transition. Um, we can't underestimate the material impact in terms of the demand for the likes of copper from electric cars and from renewable energy infrastructure. Um, so I think all that's at play. And then I think the final point I'd make is my personal opinion is that the demand forecasts coming out of China are, are, are understated and that China will continue to um, uh, invest heavily in terms of um, infrastructure. And so to me, 5% per annum demand increases coming out of China are not unreasonable. And when you put all this together, I think uh, Woodmac said that they they felt the copper industry needed uh, 500 billion plus of investment in the next 15 years, which is, what is that, almost double what's been invested in the last 15 years, then you, you kind of see the challenges that the industry faces. And so I see the, the copper market staying in deficit for at least two to three years. And and, and where that's going to take prices, I don't know. Um, but um, I wouldn't necessarily think that where we have, where, we're at now is the top. And, and just to sort of follow up on that, uh, Niels, the, the copper price has been building steadily over the past six to 12 months, very unlike the gold price. When, when the gold price went over $2,000 um, last year, last, was it August, September, it, it was a big spike. And again, in January this year, it was a, you know, pretty much straight up and down. But the copper's been plodding away uphill, definitely. Let's turn to gold. It's been an up market uh, for... Uh, Let's turn to gold, Niels. Uh, it's been an up market, but the economic data doesn't seem to favor gold. Um, no, it has not been uh, a good week, to say the least. It feels really bad talking about gold uh, when we just started talking about all the positives about copper, and now we got to go to gold. Um, fell to an eight-month low. Uh, lows not seen back since June. The uh, bond yields have just had a massive rally. Uh, up, they're up uh, 1.35% uh, today, pretty much regained all of their losses seen at the start of the, the pandemic market crisis. Um, and this is just weight on gold. Nobody's talking about inflation. Everybody's talking about growth. Bond yields are going higher and there's, and there's no reason to hold either a safe haven uh, hedge or uh, uh, um, an inflation hedge right now. So it's, it's people say that gold prices can, can go lower. Some looking at 1700. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, there's, there's a little bit more pain in the marketplace. I think Warren Buffett, sorry, go ahead, Paul. I was going to say you know, the market looking at growth rather inflation than inflation. Isn't that um, potentially uh, going to trip, trip up and, they're going to oh, oh, completely, completely. Um, and, and well, and like I was going to get into this a little bit later, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, you can't have growth if bond yields are where they're at. You know, you can't have a record uh, equity market with bond yields where they're at because the higher bond yields goes, the more you have to start talking about raising interest rates, and nobody wants that right now. So, um, yeah, it's 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 very much that you know, like so, like the higher bond yields go, the more potential gold actually has because the Fed at some point to promote growth is going to have to step in and cap these yields. Warren Buffett gave up on gold. <laughs> you know, everybody was talking about it. This being a sea change in the marketplace. Um, it was what a $500 million investment into Barrick. Um, I've said this before. I mean, that's money that they found in the couch cushions at Berkshire Hathaway. 
Um, you know, so it's not surprising that, and you like you see the performance of, of Berkshire Hathaway and, you know, the struggle that pretty much all miners have had too. Um, you know, it the, he actually lost money on that bet. So it's not... It's not surprising that he he sold in in the fourth quarter. I mean, we don't actually know when he sold in the fourth quarter, but yeah, I just it's not great for the gold market because we all sort of thought that hey, you know, maybe he's throwing, you know, he's changing his tune and and seeing gold miners as profitable, but I don't know. I don't see this as a as a big market mover. Well, it seems he may have sold a bit too soon because Barrick uh, has just—they well, just, just announced a one-off sort of dividend or return to shareholders based on a transaction they did two years ago in 2019. Yeah, well, I completely agree. I mean, there's nothing but value in the marketplace, and you just, you just, you, but you got to hold, you got to hold for that value. So I like, I don't know necessarily why he got into Barrick and then why he got out. I think we'll we'll never really know, but um, I, there's definitely. I mean, you look at all of the headlines that have come out this, this week on some of the big um, producers. And it's just, you know, there's nothing but value in this marketplace right now. TD securities uh, got out of gold. Yes. Um, so this was, this was one of the casualties of, uh, of the gold price falling below 1800. They announced that uh, they got stopped out of their long bet uh, when prices dropped below 1790 an ounce. Um, and actually, and today I saw a report, um, Commerce Bank is lowering their forecasts on, uh, uh, for gold. They now see uh, it pretty much capping out at $2,000 an ounce this year. Um, so yeah, so, you know, there's, there's definitely uh, sentiment shifts happening in the marketplace because of the price action that we've seen and, and where bond yields have, have gone. We were on a weekly survey. Uh, what are uh, we're looking at uh, this week in terms of uh, optimism around precious metals, Niels? So there were I talked to eighteen analysts, and uh, three were bullish, uh, two were neutral, and the rest very bearish. Um, but it's not. It's it's. But you got to look past the headlines too. Like they're bearish, but they also don't see gold prices going below seventeen hundred. And again, it's it's this idea that at some point the Fed is going to have to step in here. Um, and but you know, even retail guys, uh, their sentiment, their bullish sentiment. Usually, retail uh, investors are really bullish on gold. Uh, they're now that sentiment is at its lowest point since May of 2019. What's really interesting is that a month later in 2019. Uh, the Federal Reserve started cutting interest rates and gold started its rally up to record highs that we saw in August of last year. So, uh, you know, who's who's to say sentiment can shift uh, on a dime. But right now um, it's bearish and we're probably going to see more pain to come. That's our weekly survey. Uh, visit uh, Kiko.com and then you can look at uh, outlooks for both uh, Wall Street and uh, for Main Street. Before we leave precious metals, uh, we should mention platinum, which has been on a bit of a tear, Niels. Yeah, platinum has been fantastic. And I think this is this is one of the trends in the marketplace. People are now looking for value. Um, silver was still really undervalued compared to gold. Platinum massively, massively undervalued compared to uh, to gold. And there's fundamental reasons to be in both of those precious metals. If the global economy picks up, um, you're going to see industrial demand for these metals go higher. Uh, and not only that, but you know, 
there's vaccine problems uh, throughout South Africa. They're the major producer for uh, PGM metals. Um, and if this impacts production, you might see a supply crunch in, in platinum, which is, you know, what happened last year as well. Um, so, yeah, so there's, there's fundamental reasons to be in, in platinum and silver. And I think those might be the metals to watch in, in the next, uh, in, the, in the near term. And of course, they're both metals that are part of the decarbonization solution in a, in a similar way that copper is as well. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you can't ignore uh, hydrogen, uh, the the green hydrogen revolution that that's really picking up steam. So you know, it's yeah. There's there's fundamental reasons for both metals to, and and for platinum to to uh, to rally to, for the for the platinum rally to continue. Let's switch to juniors, but first, Kiko Roundtable is sponsored by Revival Gold. Revival Gold is a growth-focused gold exploration and development company, which is advancing its Bear Track Arnett Gold project in Idaho. Bear Track Arnett is the largest past-producing gold mine in the state, hosting a multi-million ounce resource of gold. The project benefits from existing infrastructure, including roads, power line, and an existing ADR processing facility. Preliminary plans are for a restart of the open pit heat leach operation, which will produce 72,000 ounces of gold per year. The oil and sustaining cost of gold will be 1,057 per ounce. The leach operation is to be followed by a second phase mill operation and a much larger scale of production. CEO is Hugh Agro, who's had several years of executive experience with stints at Kinross and Placer Dome. To learn more, visit Revival Gold, and we thank the team at Revival for its support. Paul, Integra Gold made a discovery. Yes, we're, we're going to be starting off with Idaho uh, this week. Integra Gold, made, sorry, Integra Resources made a discovery at Black Sheep at its uh, Delamar project in Idaho, which is uh, Black Sheep is about 30 square kilometers, a land package it acquired in 2019. And the indications are it could be something of similar size to its uh, Delamar deposit. Um, it's a very good news there for Integra. Liberty Gold gets its mine plans approved. Yes, Liberty Gold's also in Idaho, in the uh, the southeast corner of the state, and it got a, an approval for its plan of operations for its Black Pine project from the U.S. Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management. Um, and basically, that allows the company to disturb uh, more land, build new roads, and perhaps more importantly, build 154 additional drill pads. Um, the company thinks that uh, with this in place, it's uh, going to be able to join up various different deposits on, on its property. The company is currently working towards develop, uh, publishing a maiden mineral resource estimate on Black Pine in the second quarter, and it will then plans to proceed with a preliminary economic assessment. And also in Idaho this week, Midas Gold is now called Perpetual Resources. It's relocated its headquarters to Boise in Idaho, the state capital, and it's in the process. I think on next week it will be listed on the NASDAQ stock exchange as well. And uh, Perpetua, the name comes from Idaho's state motto, Esto Perpetua. Past guest Daniel Earl at uh, Solaris uh, made a discovery talking about uh, copper pipelines, Paul. Yes, it's been a, a big week for important discoveries, it seems. Uh, so Solaris has made a, a new discovery at Warinsa West at its Warinsa project in Ecuador. Um, drilling and was, uh, drilling intercepts were followed up by a, a detailed geographic geophysical survey 
which has revealed a big uh, extensive porphyry system. Um, they've got a great 3D model on their website, which you can go and look at and spin around. Um, so the first hole, the first hole there returned uh, an intercept of 798 meters, grading 0.25% copper, 0.02% molybdenum, and 0.02 grams per ton of gold. Uh, so again, Warinsa looks like it's going to be a very big system at the end of the day. Sticking with the copper theme, uh, Marimaca also had a discovery. Yes, Marimaca's got the uh, Marimaca oxide ore body in northern Chile, and they're currently exploring drilling for deeper sulfides. But um, more recently, they've uh, found geochemical sampling has found uh, what they're calling the Cindy target five kilometers to the north. Um, and that's looking like it could be, again, a similar size to the Marimaca oxide deposit. Um, rock sampling returned 2.9%, uh, grades of 2.9% copper. And uh, the ge geochemical anomaly, again, looks like it's going to have similar size to what they've already got at Marimaca. The last uh, piece of junior news that you pointed out to me, uh, Paul, was uh, Regulus Resources, which signed an agreement with Goldfields. Yes, uh, we seem to be, you know, very much uh, a lot of copper this week. Uh, Regulus has got the Anticora project in uh, central Peru. And uh, this deal with Goldfields, that's an earning on the Goldfields claims, allows the company to expand its footprint of the Anticori project. And importantly, enables the, the company to sort of push back its conceptual pit design onto Goldfields land, which will immediately add more resources into into their resource calculation and their economic studies, in addition to giving them um, exploration land, exploration upside. Um, regulars can earn a 60% interest by incurring three and a half million US dollars in exploration expenditures over, uh, over the next three years. So great news for regulars. And it also means, it also beefs up their bargaining position with the, the the person, the group that's got the other half of the Antiquary project, uh, sorry, deposit, which is the Koimalachi joint venture, which has has three partners, um, and so getting a bigger size or bigger critical mass for regulars is going to be important as they seek to advance negotiations on um, the future development of Antiquary. Let's switch to miners. It's a huge news week. End of year, fourth quarter financials dropped for the major gold miners. Mostly it affirmed an ongoing trend, record quarters, lots of cash and some beats. Let's start with the world's biggest gold miner, Newmont. The company said it generated record cash flows in 2020 with a fourth quarter of $856 million or $1.06 per diluted share compared to $410 million or $0.50 per diluted share a year prior. It also produced 5.9 million ounces. Earnings significantly beat expectations. It also hiked dividends and announced a 1 billion share buyback. No surprise, the silver miners, Pan American and Hecla, both announced record years. Pan American reported record revenue of 1.3 billion for the full year of 2020. Hecla Mining had sales of 691.9 million in the year. And Barrick Gold had a beat with its Q4 adjusted earning per share of 35 cents versus 31 cents. Revenue was 3.2 billion versus estimates of 3.22 billion. And gold production was 1.21 million ounces versus an estimated 1.16 million quarter on quarter. Less good for Barrick Gold is that it has reported this week that it's attributable proven and probable gold reserves as of December 31st, 2020, amounted to 68 million ounces, a 4% decline over gold reserves reported from a year ago. 
And that's not all the news, Paul. Barrick also sold an asset. Yes, I mean, Barrick's had an interesting week. I mean, it, 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 the results you just mentioned, but despite the fact that its, uh, its output, its production fell 13% last year, it's had difficulties at various operations around the world. And, um, and as you mentioned, it's, uh, it's, it's been on the market for a long time, but Barrick has announced it's going to sell its Lagunas Norte project, or sorry, operation in Peru, to Singapore's Bauru for 81, for up to $81 million. And uh, the important thing, I guess, for Barrick there is that Bauru is going to take over the, uh, the environmental reclamation mine closure liabilities. So um, that seems like a, a good deal for Barrick. Uh, switching to other metals, uh, we had uh, two contrasting uh, year ends uh, from uh, lithium miners. Uh, first, Australia's uh, Pebero Minerals on Friday reported more than a 56% jump in half-year revenue and pointed to bullish mark conditions for lithium as its loss narrowed from a year earlier. However, uh, lithium uh, miner Albumera forecast modest improvements in 2021. The company said pricing to be down slightly, primarily due to anticipated lower average realized price for carbonate and technical grade products. Uh, however, looking forward, they see that it is definitely a bullish market for lithium. Sorry, go ahead, Paul. Yes, and, and you know, again, another lithium company, SQM, this week uh, announced that it is going to go ahead with the, the Mount Holland build in Australia. So several hundred million dollars of capital is going to invest in Australia to build the Mount Holland operation. Vancouver Local Tech Resources said on Thursday it had a better than expected quarterly profit powered by a buoyant copper business on the higher prices of the metal. Average realized price for copper jumped about 26% to $3.42 per pound, while sales stood at 80,000 tons compared with 75,000 tons a year earlier. Gross profit at the business nearly tripled to $368 million in the fourth quarter, and that according to Reuters. Uh, Ashley, I'd like to bring you in. We were talking a lot about uh, copper. Uh, maybe we could stick again with uh, what the pipeline picture looks like right now. What is the um, what is copper looking like, and how are we going to actually meet the uh, demand? I think, as we said before, it's going to be a big challenge. Um, I think that uh, the lead times um, for these projects are are significant. So I, I don't really see how. We can have a material impact um, on the uh, on the copper supply position for for for, for the next couple of years. Um, um, so um, it's going to be very difficult. And as I res- result, as I said, I think um, I think we're going to see an extended period of uh, high copper prices. Uh, there aren't a lot of um, uh, projects which are coming into the market. Um, there are a number of projects that have been talked about for many years, but. Um, certainly, as we talk today, there 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 none of them really, or very few of them, going ahead. I think uh, some of the uh, the analysts view uh, see a in sort of five or ten year timeline a, a deficit of sort of five to seven million tons opening up, and, and to put that in context, that's equivalent basically to the production of Peru and Chile yeah. together. Um, and one of the, I guess, the worrying things is that the. The few projects are, that are in the pipeline, the, the scale of what they can achieve is relatively modest. Um, last year, um, or the last 18 months, Mirador went into production in Ecuador, and that, in, in the modern context, is considered a, a world-class project. But the, the production there is you know, only going to be around 100,000 tonnes a year. So the projects coming through are a scale smaller than you know, the big, massive projects 
that we've had in the past, such as you know Escondido or Cerro Verde. So um, it's, it's very alarming. Niels. Well, Ashley, I wanted to ask you, I mean, we talked about prices and how like, you know, maybe at, at $4 an ounce, this starts projects moving along. But what about the, the ESG factor? I mean, it's more than just prices to get a mine built. And I'm, and I'm sort of wondering, like, yeah, I know there's this, this going, you know, massive supply deficit and demand is growing. You know, is there an appetite, though, for, for these big copper mines to, to meet this demand? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I think um, uh, the uh, the focus upon ESG as we move we move um, we move through the energy transition is going to be one of the the areas that particular investors are focusing on. Um, I think from my oil and back, gas background, um, it's something which we've seen um, we've seen a significant focus upon over recent years. Um, and uh, my observation is is that. Um, you have to be um, you have to be well ahead of the game um, to deal with this, um, and I think what's going to happen is that um, I think that for mining companies there's going to be a um, well already mining companies are, are 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 having to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions and um, and, and particularly the bigger companies are doing that with their sustainability reports. But I think there's going to be a, an increased scrutiny um, on 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 that, and 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 that scrutiny is only going to increase. And I, I think for mining companies, they're going to be forced to take a step further, which is they're going to have to disclose plans as to how they're going to become carbon neutral. It's not going to be sufficient to just say, we emit this amount of greenhouse gases. They're going to have to come out like the fossil fuel companies have and state what their plan is and how they're going to become carbon neutral and by when. And I think also there's going to be an increased focus um, where shareholders have a say on climate-related issues. And when you put that all together, you're right. It it all adds up to um, uh, to increase barriers in terms of investment and um, and getting projects done, and so that again will have a um, will have a positive impact upon pricing because I think it's going to be more difficult um, for um, for companies to be able to develop um, projects. And I think to, to follow on from that, I think the, the, the energy matrix of a project or the, that a project has access to is going to become um, higher profile. Um, you know, does it have grid power? Will it have to have diesel power? Will it, is the grid power hydroelectric? Is it from coal? Um, Correct. Which will eventually see projects scoping renewables as part of their project scope, you know, building a wind farm, building a solar farm, or building a, a trunk line to connect to the grid. Um, mm. So project costs could creep as well. But I think there's also an opportunity there as well. I think it'd be fair to say during the last cycle, Peru was the big winner in terms of the country was able to get its annual copper production up to about 2 million tonnes a year from, from a, a much lower level. I think this cycle... Argentina is looking very well positioned. One, because it's got um, a good handful of advanced stage projects that are, you know, could get going to production within a few years. But also these projects, where they're located in Argentina, they're not near any communities. They're not near any forest. There's, there isn't a great sort of biological uh, things that they may be disrupting with their footprint. And so Argentina's perhaps got a really, really good opportunity to, to really go up the curve in terms of its copper production in this cycle. And obviously um, that's perhaps one of the reasons why the Landin 
family has uh, so many investments there. Yeah. Well, I don't know whether you know, you guys are maybe a, you're younger than me, but uh, my first involvement with the Lundins was a project called Alambrera. Um, and um, uh, Lucas's father went down to Buenos Aires and he cut a deal to uh, to effectively buy the undeveloped Alambrera resor- uh, resource that was back in the uh, in the eighties, and and the rest history. They then developed it. Uh, the Menem came to power, and that project was developed in Argentina. And I think right now there's a number of things happening in Argentina, very positive for our project in Jose Maria. A lot of people don't realize is that San Juan, the province where we are, is an established mining province. Um, and I think that um, with um, Argentina's problems in relation to its um, its availability of foreign currency and investment, what 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 I think we're going to see um, in the not too distant future is, is the development of a framework in Argentina, which is going to be positive in relation to mining. And as you said, like we've got a project in Jose Maria, um, there are other projects in Argentina which will also benefit. And um, I don't think there's any reason why Argentina can't become a much bigger force uh, within uh, within the mining sector. And I think that will be a win-win situation for all stakeholders. And another couple of projects in Argentina, the Mara project of Yamana Gold, uh, which is yes. uh, the Agrarica, uh, and Mikuan's Los Azules. Um, yeah. There are others as well. And so, Taka Taka is obviously... Taka Taka, um, first you know, quantum. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think there's a number. Of, so I don't think resource is the issue. I think it's the establishment of a um, of a framework, which which uh, like Chile did. I, I, if you go back, um, what it, I don't know how many years, 30, 40 years. DL um, six hundred. Yeah. yeah. Basically, Chile had to develop a framework, and and we see what uh, where Chile is today. So um, I think that uh, the uh, uh, Argentina is somewhere where investors should be looking, despite the problems the country's facing. The gold market was uh, always talking about wanting to see more generalists coming to the space. They wanted to see broader interest. Uh, we are certainly seeing that, though, with uh, interest in EV. Uh, and then that would be help with uh, such people as like your Elon Musk's and also some of the people around uh, GameStop and what they've tweeted. Uh, there's people that are getting into the space. Is there anything that you can comment on in terms of people that have been investing into Lundin or just generally into the space? Is there just broader interest than there has been in the past? Not really. I, I'm not close enough to 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 comment on on the uh, the shelter registers of the likes of London Mining. But of course, like all uh, companies, we've seen a significant increase in the valuations of these companies, and I, I think that's going to continue. And um, as Adolf Lundin, Lucas's father, said, the founder of the group, uh, when um, uh, when there are more buyers than sellers, the the price of the stock goes up. And um, I think what we're seeing is a more general interest in the industry, and they're, they're all seeing the theme. Um, it's there to see the electrification of the world, the demand for commodities, and um, I think that theme is going to continue, and you're going to see more generalist investors getting into um, into the sector. And there are very few pure copper players. If we look at the uh, look at the sphere of companies, there's not a lot of companies with of scale. Where you can play the uh, the copper game, and and we all know like it will impact upon the development companies, but there's a different risk profile for those companies. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to um, um, to copper companies. And my view is that what we're going to see is we're going to see a re-rating. Uh, uh, um, analysts are going to have to uh, revise their um, their copper price forecasts 
and bring the price to net asset value calculations more in line because because essentially the sector's trading at a already at a premium to analysts um, expectations of um, of value paul um and bringing together the copper and gold theme um and again Referring to your comments, Ashley, uh, Mark Bristow announced uh, this week that uh, it's Barrett Gold is no longer going to pursue a partnership or some kind of hookup joint venture or merger with uh, Freeport McMoran. Um, basically, said you know the copper price, the share price has got too high. I think over the last eighteen months, Freeport share price has tripled. Um, and, you know, leaving Mark Bristow to lick his wounds and say you know if we could have done a deal two or three years ago, it would have been really good for us, but it's it's just not possible now. Mm. Yeah, I think you're going to see more M and A, as I said in the sector. I think that um, I think uh, companies will have to look at how they're going to handle this um, this situation. And I think the um, um, I think the some of the larger copper names you may see um, activity in relation to M and A or mergers, where there's a view that scale. Um, is is valued on a, on a better basis, and therefore that's the catalyst for deals. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether we we see that in the forthcoming months. And I suppose a, a factor there as well will be that, given the the length of time it takes to explore, permit, and bring a, a copper project into production, um, buying somebody else is it obviously shortcuts that whole process to getting. Yeah, exactly. You, you look at the whole. Sphere like I, I don't think people are going to be buying early stage, um, uh, early stage um, uh, projects. But I think what's of interest, and coming back to talking our story a little bit, like you talked earlier about our investment uh, in Philo. Philo Mining is a uh, an earlier stage um, um, a project than 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 Jose Maria, but it's, it's there's already a big resource being developed. And I think the theme there is to to look at new districts, those districts which are going to be able to provide. Um, Resource, uh, sustainable resource for 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 um, for a number of years have got to be of interest, and and I think that's um, yeah, that is going to be very interesting. What happens in those kind of areas? And uh, Philo Mining, they're uh, about to drill or currently drilling some sort of two kilometer yeah. step out holes, so the potential yeah. to get bigger there. Very. Well, they've, big. al- yeah. they've already got a big oxide deposit, and um, I think the the. Uh, the uh, the goal is that we feel we're onto a a big sulfide um, uh, resource and and some of the drilling which we did last year showed strong indications of that and and we certainly hope that the drilling program that's taking place now is going to um, is going to prove that up um, and um, it's got the potential to be very very big exciting times yeah very much so what's it uh what is the development picture like right now uh how are are the costs escalating and how's the timeline going for uh developing a mine ashley yeah it's been quite interesting like floor did the work for jose maria we finished the feasibility study and um we were uh, we were very pleased we got the a team and we still got the a team and um um we are now um looking to move that project into basic engineering and, and keep the strong team which we have on board but of course as I mentioned earlier, I think that uh, when you start to see, if we do start to see um, a movement in terms of more projects moving forward, then there will be a, a bottleneck in terms of the availability of people. So the key is to get in there early and to make sure your projects can retain the uh, uh, the teams um, um, and the quality teams which you need. How long will it take to get you know from where you're at to a mine in full production? 
how many years do you, do you are, are you sort of planning this? Yeah, well, I think you look at the feasibility study. I can't remember the exact numbers. Like you, you're talking multiple years, but um, we are uh, um, we're far further ahead than many other projects. Uh, we have a feasibility study. We're moving into basic engineering. Environmentally, we're we're there, and we don't have the same kind of permitting issues you have in Chile. So it can be done much, much more quickly. But let's not kid ourselves. These are not projects where you press the button and you have um, you have uh, production in, in one or two, even two to three years. You, you're looking at periods in, in excess of that. And so it doesn't really have any big impact upon the supply-demand equation in the short term. I think uh, when I spoke uh, with Adam Landine uh, recently, he's the uh, president and CEO, I think he said um, it could be in production in 2026. For Jose. Yeah. For Jose, yeah. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. Let's turn to our number of the week. Ashley, where we start with a guest, what's your number? Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, my number is 16 and a half billion. Don't know. <laughs> Got nothing. <laughs> what is it? Well, it's what I calculate. If, 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 um, if today all of the world's annual production of vehicles um, was uh, electrified, that's the amount of copper, 16 and a half billion pounds would be required on an annual basis to meet that requirement. So there's nearly 100 million cars or vehicles produced a year, and it's 180 pounds of copper required. So by my calculations, that amounts to about 30% of the world's current copper demand. So I think it just shows the potential impact of electrification um, on, on the markets. It's um, it's going to be a huge demand from electrification um, alone. We're seeing uh, people uh, revising their uh, forecasts uh, for uh, automobile, uh, EV automobile uh, sales right now. I guess it was uh, partially helped uh, by the uh, COVID-19 and a lot of the uh, aggressive uh how would you say, uh, stimulus measures uh, to kind of get uh, manufacturing going? And then you saw that uh, in Europe and then some of the lithium miners were kind of planning against that. Paul, what's your number of the week? My number is, I've changed it, I've just changed it, 11%. Okay, <laughs> that's the copper price. We're 11% below the all-time high of $4.58 a pound from January 2011. Wow. Mm. Getting close. Niels, what's your number? Uh, I actually gave my number of the week out already. Um, bond yields, 1.35%. Um, and so I actually have another number on top of that, um, 175%. That is the rally bonds have made since uh, hitting uh, 50 basis points in August. Um, and I just like that can't continue bonds can't rally another hundred percent from from where they are um it just it's not going to be sustainable for economic growth um and i think this is why um you still have to be you know the the long-term fundamentals for for gold are still in place because um with all of the debt that we've accumulated over the past year you know during this pandemic um nobody can afford higher interest rates at this point. My number of the week is 25%. Uh, BMO, 
lifted its forecast for electric car penetration by 2030, expects 25 million in sales. Uh, that's 25 million in auto sales, implying a 25% penetration in the global car market. Most mm. impacted will be lithium, cobalt, and nickel. BMO cautions that uh, copper, there will be higher demand, but uh, he sees more demand coming from uh, renewable energy sources and renewable power stations. I want to thank uh, Ashley. Uh, Ashley, can you tell us some of the milestones that you're looking for from uh, Jose Maria and Lundin in 2021? Yeah, well, um, first of all, let's start with Jose Maria. It's going to be a very interesting year. We, um, we've got our environmental impact assessment, uh, which is going to be lodged shortly. Um, this is a big project. Like Just to put in context, we've got a billion tons. We 20-year mine life. Um, first three years, we're going to produce over 160,000 tons of copper a year and um, and also th 330,000 ounces of gold. Um, and, and it's in a good location. So my view, and having spoken to a number of respected technical people who we know within the group, their comment is this project is going to be developed. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so what we're looking forward to is, is sort of seeing this framework um, develop with the uh, in Argentina, which is going to be positive in relation to um, um, attracting foreign investment into Argentina because we've already got the support of the of the local provinces in San Juan. So we look forward to that. And I think it's going to be a big deal for, for us and for Argentina. Uh, for London Mining, I think, as I mentioned, it's, it's more of the same. We've got strong uh, copper prices. We're going to increase our production and cash flow. We've got an, a large undeveloped resource base, which we've got the potential to, um, to invest in and grow. And, and the solid balance sheet gives that company a huge amount of flexibility, whatever that may be, um, the, uh, uh, to, to have effectively access to liquidity at the moment is, I think, a very strong point for the company. So, um, as you said, it's going to be a really exciting 2021 and we're looking forward to it. Ashley, thank you very much. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael McRae. That's with two C's. Niels is Niels underscore C and Paul Harris is at P Harris 1313. Please note, Kiko will be announcing its CEO of the year for mining and junior sector. Look for an announcement shortly. We will also be hosting Kiko Live, <clears throat> a two-day conference on April 20th and 21st. Hey, if you like this podcast, tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe through iTunes. Now our conversation with Peter Grandich. What is the next gold in terms of growth potential? Well, our next guest thinks it could be metals related to the electrification of the economy. Peter Grandich, founder of Peter Grandich & Company, is back with us. Peter, our viewers have asked for you to come back ever since you appeared on our program again last summer. So I'm happy you answered their call. I'm happy you're here today. Thank you for being here. Well, thank them. And it's really my pleasure to be here, David. So I look forward to this. Thank you. And Peter, let's talk about the calls that you've made over the years. We'll start with that. Uh, as you know, gold has had a tremendous run. We've talked about this last summer. You had made the correct call to go pretty much all in on gold in 2018 when it was around $1,200. And of course, we saw what happened to gold in the subsequent years. Walk us through that call. Walk us through your rationale of going all in on, on the yellow metal a couple of years ago. Sure. I'll start right after when my wife said, I think you're crazy. And uh, I decided to uh, sell most of my uh, general equities and put it mostly in physical bullion and mining shares at that time. At that time, it was difficult. Uh, 
almost like I called the Maytag repair man. It was very lonely uh, to be a very avid bull. Uh, but uh, needless to say, we caught the run mostly up to the 2000 level, bailed out of, uh, came back in, but focused more on the mining shares than the physical bullion these days, simply because I'm not in the camp of five or $10,000 gold. I do think you can get the 22, 2300. That's always been my target. And from this point on, while that be a 20, 25% uh, move in bullion, the mining shares now and the leverage that they offer, uh, particularly the producers, have seem to have much more upside. So for me personally, I'm much more overweighted in the mining shares than phys physical bullion going forward. And I really think we're, we're seeing the last of the correctiveness of that semi-parabolic move we had uh, in the summer uh, that uh, took us uh, you know, to almost adjusted for inflation new highs. They weren't all-time highs, but they they were almost there. So I, I think we're going to revisit them as early as the latter part of this year and no later than next year. And there, the mining shares are going to offer more opportunity, in my view, than the actual physical bullion. So Peter, I'm wondering uh, if you think that gold has only a few hundred dollars of upside left, you said 2200 to 2300 why do you think the mining shares would have substantially more upside? if the mining shares prices are usually based on the underlying metal? Well, that's not necessarily true. And, and they've been able to separate themselves in recent years. The first thing is the argument there has become very, very bullish for the mining shares. First of all, reserves are down 50% in the last decade. Uh, there's there's a great need and, 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 a, and a shortage of new great uh, deposits to come online. S second of all, uh, even at that level, and when you say, you know, a 25% gain is still not too shabby to think that that's what gold can go to. But to, for producers, all, almost all of that falls to the bottom line now. So they'll see a much better percentage return if that happens. And, and if, if that's the case, they still can double or even triple. And, and doubling or tripling in a couple of years used to be a decent target. Now people feel that if you don't do it in the next day or week, you're underperforming. But uh, I still think there's substantial upside. And there is the opportunity to go past the 22, 2300. We'd have to see certain dire things get worse. But for now, I think that's a good target to have. Yeah, you're right, Peter. Usually in a bull market, the uh, miners have more leverage and they outperform. I've spoken to executives of a few miners. Um, I won't name which, but uh, some of them have lagged behind the precious metals last year. Usually when that happens, Peter, as an investor, what kind of questions would come to your mind? Well, sometimes it is their own performance, but more times than not, uh, it, it's a very fragmented industry compared to when I used to be very active in it. It has a lot of competition that didn't exist before. Start with cryptocurrencies, go over to the uh, pot stocks, go over to the fact that the, we've never seen such high complacency and, and so much enthusiasm in general equities. Uh, so there's been a lot of competition that those companies have had to compete against, and that may be, and it's also very hard for them to communicate now. Not only has the pandemic uh, impacted their way to get new investor interest, but it's become very difficult for, say, Canadian-based companies to get U.S. investors involved, regulatory and otherwise, has prevented that when it didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. So they still have a lot of challenges to get their fair share of recognition. Okay. Now you uh, showed me this chart, I'd like to show the audience now. It shows the uh, gold price versus the S&P 500 total return index over the last 20 years or so, since 2000. 
And this chart, during that time frame, as we can see, gold has substantially outperformed the S&P 500 index. Uh, first of all, why do you think this has happened? And what's the significance of this chart, you think? Well, I think the, la the latter question is the more important one. And that is, and I use it for two reasons. I, I suggest to people to understand that here in the U.S., uh, two-thirds of those giving financial advice now have only been licensed since after the new millennium started. And uh, so for that reason, they really only withstood a, a, a financial crisis in 2008 and a, and a very sharp a blip down last year. Other than that, it's been a one-way street and it's it's been basically a bullish environment. And if you took a poll to most of those same advisors and asked them, what do you think has performed best since the new millennium started, stocks or gold? Almost all of them would say stocks. And yet the real truth of the matter is a gold has outperformed it. But it, it also takes me to the other thing that I speak about, about gold. Gold is kryptonite to the financial service industry. Uh, it, it flies in the face of what, what they're in the business to sell and advise on. And, uh, you know, whether you want to call it a relic and the other names that have been given to it, uh, the bottom line is it's, it's, it's been in a stealth bull market since the new millennium. And, uh, of course, uh, it's never going to receive overall uh, bullishness from the general equity markets, because if, 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 if you really believe in why you should own gold, it's not the same reasons that you want to own general equity. So I, I point that out to people and to keep that in mind that despite the feeling, uh, especially when you own junior resource stocks, and that's usually the people that get most depressed because they tend to be uh, uh, underperforming more times than they overperform. It's very important to recognize that gold has still been uh, what it's been for a couple thousand years, and that's been a preserver of wealth and, and really something that keeps its purchasing power. Peter, I'm looking at this chart, and the first question I have that comes to my mind is, do you think that over the last 20 years, the time, the time frame of this chart, do you think that our economy, our living standards in America have deteriorated? Oh, it, it, it's no question, especially in the last several years, that we've had only a small percentage. Nothing shows it more than what's we've happened in the pandemic. People talk about the 1%. I really use the 10%. About 10% of the people moved forward over the last 12 months or so. The rest of the crowd has fought to stay where they are, slipped or actually fell, and many have lost businesses, jobs, careers, and their entire future. So there's no question in my mind uh, that more people or, or the vast amount of people are, are worse off now than in the last 10 or 20 years than, than they were beforehand. So uh, when you think about that, somebody has, something has to give, David. The 90% have to catch up to the 10%. The 10% have to come back to the 90% or they got to meet somewhere in between. It's probably the latter. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I think also you have to be very concerned now about how far extended the general equity market is. And the view on Wall Street is not the view that most of the people on Main Street have. There's just this prevalent view uh, amongst investors that gold is a hedge against many things, one of them being uh, economic deterioration. And I wonder if that's something that you have in the back of your mind when you buy gold, you expect the economy to perform poorly. That's why you want to protect yourself with gold. Is that why? No, uh, that's, a, that's an, a reason, but it's not the reason. The reason for me to own it now is the same way I would own general equities at one time. I think it's going to be a capital gain. I don't try to get too caught up into all the, the craziness and all the things about it. I will say this, 
There's no question there's a debasing of currencies going on. There's a race to the bottom around the world. And that, again, is very favorable for gold long term as well. I understand. Now, I have one rebuttal, just one for you, uh, Peter, is that uh, if you take a look at some investors like Warren Buffett, who famously doesn't like gold, he, he has said that if you take a look at the long term chart from back to the 50s to now, the best performing asset is still equity. So if you take a long term 70 year chart, the S&P 500 still outperforms. So doesn't this depend on your time horizon as an investor, Peter? Well, that's always been an unfair uh characteristic by a man that deserves attention. I, I would listen to Warren Buffett, but for a long time, gold was fixed and didn't have that same opportunity to prosper during those timeframes. Uh, but I think if, if you take in the account of what it's done for a couple of thousand years uh, versus what paper money has done, because ultimately that's what equities are. They're a form of paper assets. Uh, gold still to me is second to none. Okay. So you have shifted your allocation now to more mining stocks. Are they more, are they all gold and silver mining stocks? Can you, without going into detail, Peter, can you tell us about some of the other sectors that you like? Well, after that, uh, in late 2019 and early 2020, I became something for the first time I never was in my then 36-year career. And I've been coined the uranium bug because I became so deeply convinced and in fact, stated many, many times over several months that I believe the coming bull market in it will be the best bull market I ever experienced in close to 37 years now in the business. So I got very, very involved in uranium. Now I focused more on the producer side than those who like the junior resource side. But we're witnessing now as we speak the coming of that bull market. Uh, we're way off the lows. People are starting to recognize uh, that the tying into my next investment theme that there is going to be a need for more power and it needs to be clean and what have you. Uh, nuclear is going to play a big role. And that's why I think we've just started to see the shares go without even seeing the uranium price itself go. And when that kicks in, which I don't think is too far from now, we're really going to see a move. I'm going to stay overweighted on the producers because of conservativeness uh, and, and wanting to take less risk. But I think most of the things that have uranium will rise. And so I pretty well have made my bets in that market. And now I'm watching them fulfill, hopefully, my, my goals. And now the third investment theme that I've come to, and thankfully for someone that's appeared on, on, your, on your show, uh, and it was really hit dope is for make me to recognize it. And uh, that is the coming electrification of, uh, of, of the world and what that's going to mean and why I've gotten very involved in things like copper at the moment and uh, looking at other uh, avenues to invest in. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about nuclear first and we'll get into the um, EV story. So currently, according to the um, EIA, in 2019, nuclear power accounted for 20% of electricity generation in the U.S. Do you anticipate this number to increase? Well, it's definitely going to increase in the U.S., but even so much more around the world. Uh, and everywhere we look now, uh, people are talking about, you know, this carbon free and, and yet everybody wants to have all these gadgets, you know, all these electrical cars that are going to exist and all. We're witnessing now here in the U.S. that a lot of people that went to the wind power and wind tower, they can't operate because they froze up and things of that nature. So I, I just think there's a lot of reasons to suspect that nuclear energy, barring a, 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 a very unfortunate accident again, 
is gonna grow as a need for, to fulfill all this increased power needs. And there's so few, you can literally count on both hands the major producers in the world. And uh, you know, obviously I will mention because I think it's the bellwether is Cameco. And uh, that's certainly my largest uranium holding, but uh, I really think that market still has, it's only in this, maybe the second inning of at least a nine inning game. Uh, I was that was my next question is how you would actually as an investor play the uranium market. It's uh, not a market that everybody is familiar with. So you mentioned a company. Uh, would you consider an ETF? I, I know yeah. that I'm looking at wanting the URA as a uranium ETF. So you're you're, you're right, David. Uh, the safer bet is because they'll get more diversification, and Camago is a key player in those couple of ETFs that are out there. There are a lot of juniors, and like I said, they'll rise, but when the utilities come around and recognize that they have to assure themselves of future uranium, they're not going to go and run to a company that maybe seven or 10 years from now may eventually have a mine. They're going to want to be certain of, of supply. And that's why the chemicals of the world, I think, are just going to you know do phenomenally well. So I, I personally want to error reduces, but you're right. I think the safer bet for most investors is the ETFs. So, Peter, you're now invested in the electrification of the world. That includes not only electric vehicles, but also renewable energy generation like wind power and solar power. But don't you think that these power generation sources could compete with your nuclear investments? I don't think it'd be so much as compete. I think they'll all be part of the program in order to get us to meet the needs of this electrification. Uh, but one of the things I, I think is really critical is the fact that uh, Copper is the main component and the, net, the most useful uh, metal in order to get electricity from one place to another. So uh, I would first argue that the, the copper end of it is a better play before I start looking at uh, wind and solar. But they all are going to make up and need it uh, for what's transpiring. And it's, it, it's kind of exciting uh, to know that because, uh, as your guest that's been on has said, it's not yet something that's in the, the investment domain, just as uranium wasn't in the investment domain a year or so ago. And only in the last few weeks have we started to see news stories of various people saying, hey, it's time to be involved. And, and, and I think we're going to get to that on the electrification end. Uh, and, what, and, and of course, you invest on the basis of hoping that something's going to happen, not wait till it happens, because then you can never buy it at what you like, to, what you see it at price now. Okay. And the uh, and you said copper is your preferred play for the electrification angle. Yeah, no question about it. And uh, uh, there, as as has been pointed out, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to find the, the high-grade copper that's going to be needed to be to make mines profitable and for, for companies to go and spend hundreds of mil millions, if not billions of dollars to develop it. And uh, so I think the few key copper projects that are out there, I think where you look is going to be critical. I think that's the same for gold and silver. It's become very difficult to be a miner, period, in many parts of the world. And uh, I think we're going to find ourselves back in North America again, uh, Canada and some parts of the U.S., not only for gold and silver, but also for copper. And, you know, places like Arizona, I've invested quite heavily in a little junior called Arizona Metals. But no matter what, I think it's going to be important where they're looking for it as much as what they're looking for. Peter, uh, I want to go back to the gold versus S&P chart one more time. Now, it's true that over the 20, last 20 years, gold has outperformed the S&P according to the chart. 
But let's take let's say suppose you remove gold and overlay it with crypto. Well, Bitcoin has really outperformed the S and P 500 over the last well not 20 years. It's been around only since 2010. But just since 2010, it's really outperformed the equity. So, what is your view on cryptocurrencies? Have you have you looked at it as an asset class? Have you considered it seriously? Well, I, I've taken the Switzerland approach because if you uh, aren't a roaring bull, or worse yet, you make a comment that may even be negative, uh, a cult-like group comes after you. And uh, and, and I truly have been. It, it is not something I felt that I had an expertise in. It's probably one of the main reasons I didn't get involved in it. I congratulate those who have. It's been a wonderful performer. But one of the things I learned after 37 years, Dave, is it's an attitude of what have you done for me lately? So with with Bitcoin at 50,000 now and, and, and copper, you know, and gold where it's at, if you took my child and said, you know, even though she's grown and said the only way you get it back, which one outperforms over the next 12 or 24 months at the risk of being attacked by the cult, I would take the copper and the gold. Doesn't mean Bitcoin can't still go up and cryptocurrencies are definitely here to say, but the one shoe that hasn't fallen yet, that if I am a bullish cryptocurrency person that I would be at least mindful of, and that is regulatory. We're starting to see in recent weeks and months, several regulatory people starting to talk about Bitcoin in a negative way. And that's its last hurdle to get over. And is there a shoe going to drop to where they get to the point of saying, no, we need to basically hurt Bitcoin in order to do whatever their own plans are for currencies and all. I think that's the last hurdle. And so if you have these huge gains that many people have and haven't taken them any, uh, if I may say this, and if it's not good, you can cut it out. But there's an old saying that I think is appropriate for Bitcoin holders now. Hey, listen, there's bulls, bears, and pigs. They each have their days, but eventually the pigs go to the slaughterhouse. And I've seen too many people have huge gains and never take them and regret it more times than not. And that would be my only uh, caution that I would have for Bitcoin shareholders. I, 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 You have a wealth of wisdom for investing. So it would be uh, foolhardy not to at least consider what you're saying. Uh, finally, so for the final segment, I'd like to just sort of generally get your get your take on investing, so to speak. What is Peter Grandage's philosophy on investing? What has made you successful over the last 37 years of your career? And uh, 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 if a young investor were to uh, enter the space, somebody in his 20s, perhaps early 30s, uh, and he has a little bit of money to uh, invest. I get these questions from my friends all the time, people in their 20s asking me, David, I, I just got some money from from my from my work or uh, from an inheritance. What do I do with it? What would you advise them to do? Well, after 37 years and losing more money over that was time than I ever imagined as a young man in his 20s at one time that I could have, I would tell you that uh, for me, it took uh, serious loss serious battles with depression to the point where I realized that money wasn't going to be the answer or my God, which it once was. Uh, so the first thing I would just tell them is uh, you have to make a decision on what's more important in your life, a few extra dollars or, or peace of mind. There are a lot of people with a lot of money, but still have a lot of problems. So money doesn't necessarily mean all your answers are going to be answered by having more of it. Having said that, uh, I think people need to understand that these are very, very matured markets. Uh, you could argue that it can be sustained because the Fed's going to keep printing money or stimulus bills, what have you. 
but it's hard to argue that general equities or bonds for that matter are undervalued or fairly valued. Can they overvalue this continue going on? So I, I would just tell them that don't think that everything is a boat, which means if you don't get on, you've missed the boat. No, there's no boats in investing, they're ferries. When one ferry sails, another one will come in. So uh, I would just err on the side of caution right now. And uh, I would try to be an expert more than six months or, you know, before I think I know everything. And uh, experience is the best teacher. And the best line that I can say, and it wasn't for me, it was from my mentor way back named Kennedy Gamage. He used to say, once is an experience, twice is a mistake. But many times in the markets, you don't get a chance to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, I think I would err on the side of caution at this point. Well, how can a new investor educate himself? Not everybody has a background in business or finance, but they're still interested in investing. Well, one of the things is is learning. You know, you have demonstrated, and, and and listen, I don't have to brown those you. You know that. If I never was on again, I'm grateful to be here, but it won't. I won't lose sleep. But watching a program like this that demonstrates having numerous people that a guy, even me, that's been 37 years and can basically handle his own investments, still watches a program like yours. That's a teaching point, and I think they need to identify more teaching points like yours. Uh, and, and follow it for a while before they go out and, you know, go crazy. And uh, many times, in a sense, paper trade. Okay, this is what I would do if I had my money today. And, you know, see how it develops. If you're in your 20s, you have a lot of time left. Don't don't feel like, you know, time is an essence. And uh, I just think, like I said, and, and, and the biggest line I like to leave people is, remember, the ultimate crime in investing is never being wrong. You might not think when you watch some of the financial network as any of those people have been wrong, but trust me, I've been wrong and so have they. Yeah. It's staying wrong. That's the big tough. The biggest separation from winners and losers is people always complain, Dave, hey, you guys always tell us when to buy. You never tell us when to sell. I'll give you that advice. You start thinking about selling when you couldn't first buy it today at today's prices. And if you can't buy it at today's prices, then you have to ask yourself, why am I staying in this investment vehicle? All right. So final question for you, Peter. You said you've made a lot of mistakes over your career. Well, everybody has. What's one mistake you've made that you wish you hadn't? What's one thing that you've learned from that mistake? Uh, there's too many to, to imagine that. But I think it comes to, uh, there's an old saying Mark Twain said that uh, you never have to worry what you said if you always tell the truth. The moment you feel somebody hasn't been truthful to you, you need to put up a big flashing yellow sign. And uh, it's very hard to find truth in a world full of people caught up in, in, in what it is today. And, and when you can find someone as valuable as I told, I've told you off the air, a few of your guests to me, even after all my experience, it become very valuable to listen to. Cherish that and soak all of it in that you can because that that is a gift from God. All right. Peter, well, thank you very much for coming on and uh, imparting your wisdom. You're welcome to come back anytime, and I look forward to more of your updates. And anybody that has any Bitcoin complaints of what I said, please send them to David. <laughs> I, I get enough of these already, Peter. Peter, send them back to Peter. No, I'm kidding. Peter, uh, that's wonderful. Thank you very much for coming on. We'll speak again. Thank you, David. God bless. And thank you for watching Kiko News. I'm David Lynn.